0: a doctor in the house doctor doctor give me the
1: news i got a bad case of love you doctor
0: doctor 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 and doctor
1: it's time for advanced medicine monday with dr rashid batar
0: i'm a doctor not a bricklayer but doctor not a mechanic i'm a doctor not a coal miner
1: The doctor is in. Notwithstanding global mercury burdens and the mercury burdens within children and adults of all ages and all of the uh, associated ailments, diseases, and degenerative uh, conditions, uh, we have a, a story here, Dr. Bittar, to open today's show uh, with from Dr. Christopher Exley, who I've had on the program. I met him a few years back at the Autism One Conference. I don't know if he was at the same one we were at. Do you remember meeting Dr. Chris Exley? Was that possible it was the same one you were at?
0: Uh, is it Axley or Apsley?
1: A- Exley, Christopher Exley. He was a Brit. White hair.
0: I may not have met him. him no.
1: Anyway, nice, very nice man and doing some great work and the support from Claire Dwaskin and the Children's Medical Safety Research Institute, CMSRI.org. And he's been working on this for many years and evidently just released to a peer reviewed journal uh, more evidence than ever before released on the aluminum link to alzheimer 's now I don't think this this is 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 saying oh it has nothing to do with mercury either but he just focused on, all, on on aluminum and it's very interesting the the levels of aluminum he found in familial manifestations of alzheimer's
0: well you know this is a great uh, topic and close and dear to my heart because the understanding of how metals work in the body and um, how they have an impact on pathology is really, really in its infantile stage. And even though there are some books that are out there, some very um, substantial textbooks out there on the subject, it's very, very uh, early on in the development of the science. So when you look at the pathophysiology from the oxidative stress, which is really the mechanism of disease uh, for all diseases, for all pathology... That oxidative stress aspect, we've talked about this before, Robert, you've got the heavy metals that have the oxidative injury aspect, which is the first mechanism of damage. The second one is from the displacement of essential minerals. And then the third one is just from the allergenicity component, which is relatively rare compared to the first two. Now, if you're looking at Alzheimer's or any condition for that matter, but let's look at Alzheimer's specifically, you'll see that aluminum, nickel, tin, um, lead, all these different metals can be seen in a higher level or or a greater concentration than you would expect in the normal population. But the offending uh, component, I believe, it has been and always will be mercury. And there's a very specific reason for that. When you see mercury, mercury is the last thing you're going to see on any testing because it's the last thing that shows up. You're always going to see some of these other metals first. And I've never seen um, other metals present Uh, and no mercury. We may not see the mercury in the initial testing. It may take us two, three, four years. I think you and I off the air once talked about a case that I have. It's the highest level of mercury ever measured in a child that I've measured in my clinic. And this child, when he came in, had no, I mean, he had probably one of the most uh, unremarkable tests for heavy metal challenge, as you could imagine. And it wasn't until his three and a half year, three year and um, eight month point on a last metal challenge, because we could not see anything on this kid. You know, this is like the first time I'm thinking to myself, could it possibly be that this child that's been treated for this long, still doesn't show any metals. We started the hyperbaric component on him, which is the secondary, the recovery portion, and my gut feeling told me, just check one more metal. Dad comes in and says the same thing. We check his metals again. His lead level was over 120 micrograms per gram creatinine, and his mercury level was uh, 34 micrograms per gram creatinine. Anything more than 3 is considered toxic in mercury, and anything greater than 5 in that particular test was high for lead. So we thought this has got to be an error, so we repeated it. And the repeat came back 247 micrograms per gram creatinine lead and 87 micrograms per gram creatinine mercury. It had more than um, uh, almost doubled on the mercury and more than doubled in the lead in just one test. Now the point that I'm making is that when you start looking at Alzheimer's, and you look at the aluminum, you're going to see aluminum. You're going to see copper. You're going to see some of these other things. It's, you're not going to see the mercury till very late in the game. Plus, if you publish it on mercury, you'll never get published. Uh, you and I have talked about that off the air as oh, well. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's very aspect. true.
1: But, Dr. Bittar, remind us about this particular case, because this showed you that in uh, an, uh, you know, not every case but some, where they say we've ruled out mercury in this case, you continued. You persisted. You said, "There's something that we're missing here," and you had to really—I don't know if it's to trick the body, but almost force the body to relinquish the, the mercury that it was hiding so tightly, holding so tightly—you you couldn't normally find it easily.
0: Yeah, it's the, that's a that's the million-dollar question. Is it that we? Um, the analogy comes to mind. It's almost like hunting, you know, and you're waiting for that deer to show up. And after a day or two days, a five days, a 10 days, or two weeks, or two months, the hunters say, okay, you know what? There's no, no deer that's going to come here. Uh, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. But it's an exercise in patience and consistency. And there's this rule in medicine, always and never are never true. There are always exceptions to the rule. Robert, if there's one exception to that rule, is that in autism, mercury will always play a role. I don't know where, when, how. Alzheimer's, it will always play a role. In any neurodegenerative disease that's chronic like that, that's been, dis- that's been associated with uh, chronicity, Alzheimer's, autism, I'm not going to say that with Parkinson's because I don't have enough experience treating Parkinson's. I've only treated a couple dozen patients. But with autism, over 2,600, uh, actually we just passed 2,700 a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, 2,700 kids in our own clinic and worldwide been involved with or have, doctors that have been dealing with patients and use our protocol in nearly 35,000 cases and every one of these kids, mercury plays a role. In fact, yeah. there's an unpublished study that we had that um, Dr. Paris Kidd came in and analyzed the data for us. We wrote it up. He sub- they submitted it to Lancet. At that time, they had a rapid uh, uh, submission policy for a short study, and we missed that deadline by like two weeks, so it never did get published. But in that study, we compared urine, hair, fecal, and red blood cell metal levels in mercury, uh, of mercury in children with autism. And he came up with something like an 88% correlation. And I was looking. At this, and I said, this is wrong. It's got to be 100%. And he says, I'm telling you, I reviewed all your data. I took the four, you know, top 35 cases. I went back and started looking at his data, and I, uh, uh, at our data that he had analyzed. And I said, wait a second, Paris. First of all, why did you eliminate these children? He goes, well, I, I eliminated all the hair. I was like, what do you mean you eliminate all the hair? He goes, well, you know, it's not, it's not considered acceptable by mainstream medicine, so I just eliminated the hair data. I said, if you start looking at the hair data, you will see, and sure enough, we saw hair, when you included the hair data, and there was one child that he eliminated because he said that it, it, the, the, the data showed that, you know, she really wasn't, um, he, he couldn't correlate the improvement in her, her improvement wasn't as significant. She wasn't that sick, so she was back to neurotypic a lot faster. But when you included that child's data and you included the the fecal metal data, 100% of children had mercury because there were a couple of children that didn't show mercury in any other vector, but in fecal, it was like 17 to 1900% increase in mercury levels coming out of the fecal material. So when you compared all four, air, urine, fecal, and RBC, and this is the reason I do all four tests, you will always see mercury coming out. And the reason I do the four different tests is because in some people, some people's will eliminate in certain vectors, and other people will not. So you, you have to catch it. You have to see it a 100% correlation. He was amazed when he started looking at the data again. And he thought, you're right, 100% of these people had mercury, and, and they all had diagnosis of autism, and they were all reversed after a treatment protocol.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, on the works that uh, Dr. Exley did about aluminum. It's like the aluminum industry fought him tooth and nail, right? Alcoa and, and the like, just like you've been you know, attacked for bringing up Mercury, and they, they won't publish on Mercury, but he's been able over years finally to get something revealed here, uh, published in, a, in in a, uh, I don't, let's see, I'm trying to find out where it's published, They listed in here, I'll, I'll dig down deeper until I can find it for you, but they recognize and accept that aluminum is a known neurotoxin, right, that's mm-hmm. not, ev- mm-hmm. evidently it's not controversial, but at the same time, They've been trying to deny that environmental mercury exposure, in this case aluminum exposure, really had anything to do with autism or, in this case, Alzheimer's, because why? Industry is using it in so many ways, shapes, forms, even in cookware, much less on cars, and so many things use aluminum that industry is fighting against this still.
0: Right, and I think that's where it comes in. They're afraid of the fallout from information like this that comes out that could cause Decrease in sales of items that are uh, manufactured using aluminum, but in actuality, it's the, the aluminum is like a a uh, guilty by association issue. Okay, mm-hmm. so you, and I'm again, I'm only going, I'm not going by his data, I'm not going by his research, I'm just going by clinical observation over the last 20 years of dealing with people with metals. I see aluminum in many people. Aluminum is one of the first things that shows up. Aluminum is relatively easy to get rid of, and the body has Pathways uh, seems to have better resilience and better pathways or a more, more, uh, greater number of pathways, I should say, that eliminate aluminum. The only reason I say that is because aluminum toxicity clinically, I have never seen it. And if I see it on, um, uh, as far as implications from it, because when I see it, within two weeks, two months, max, maybe three and a half months, the aluminum is gone. It's very easy to come out. So the implications, chronic disease implications from aluminum, I have not seen. Um, and so, I think the body has a better way of getting rid of aluminum, easier way. And mercury on the opposite extreme is a very difficult way. So, if somebody was going to look at the low lying fruit, you would see aluminum very quickly. You'd also see nickel very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you'd probably end up seeing lead relatively quickly. Mercury will be the last thing, and mercury is the biggest thing.
1: Yeah, it's the biggest baddie. We've known that. I've known that as a homeopath for many years. And we're not downplaying what uh, at Dr. Exley's research shows here. By the way, it's published in the Journal of Trace Elements in Medicine and Biology, and we have links up in the show notes at robertscabell.com. This is when we do advanced medicine each and every week with Dr. Rasha Bittar. He's also the author of the international best-selling book, for those of you who are new to the show, and Dr. Bittar. It's called The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. So, yes, Professor Chris Exley at Kiel University has been doing, you know, kind of one of those guys just pushing forward, pushing forward, despite all of the obstacles to show that another metal is contributing to another neurological degradation disease. And, of course, all of the moonshot money that they're saying, how can we cure and prevent Alzheimer's? It's all drug research. Who's focusing on detoxification of heavy metals?
0: Very, very few people are dealing with that issue, and I think that's one of the problems with modern medicine is that we have forgotten this Very, very important subject, and this is the reason the DVD on heavy metal is called Heavy Metal metal Toxicity, The Hidden Killer.
1: Yep. So we got more discussion on that as well. Uh, We may have some more autism discussion. We certainly have a question of the day related to COPD we'll get to as well. And also, could it be that cancer doctors are intentionally diagnosing trophy people for profit? Yeah, we're going to get that too.
0: Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about, uh, things?
1: It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. Robert, Scott, the Bell Robert show. Scott Bell Show. Links up the show notes, com. upcoming events, uh, an integrative health symposium I'll be at in Davenport, Iowa, the 7th of January. Uh, we had Dr. Syed Shah, he's originally from Pakistan, studied uh, integrative type medicine and uh, immune issue medicine in Chicago, I think University of Chicago in Egghead School, but nice that he's open. Seems to me, Dr. Vitar. a lot of times people coming from the east, right, From Asia and other places will come here and they'll be more open to integrative natural medicine than those that train solely in the West. Is that, am I looking for something there that isn't real? Is that just,
0: uh, you know, I I would, I have not seen that. I mean, I've met doctors from, you know, throughout the years now from every walks of life and cultures and creeds and religions and ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen that pattern. Um, What I have seen is a pattern where doctors, when they themselves or one of their immediate family members have had a critical issue that nobody else could fix. That almost universally is the underlying motivation for them to. That
1: may be it. That may be it because I happen to run into those folks, and they happen to be from all over the world. So maybe more than whether they're from India or Pakistan as opposed to whether they've encountered a thing within their own training that says, you know what, this does not work. I've got to expand my right. repertoire here. Uh, speaking of expanding repertoire, you talked about this a while back. We have a question of the day from someone named Maudlin uh, uh, and says, could you please help me find a doctor in the New York City or New Jersey area to do IRR injections to relieve COPD? Please, ASAP, I thank you sincerely. Now, I remember you talking about some kind of weird injection into the lungs directly. Am I remembering this right? Was it for COPD or what?
0: Yeah, it's close. It's not into the lungs um... The IRR injection stands for the Infra-Respiratory Reflex. The IRR injection is developed by uh, Dr. Philbert, who I believe is now deceased. Um, Dr. Philbert was a pretty remarkable individual, and uh, I learned how to do these injections with Dr. Philbert directly. In fact, the first person that I did this on was my brother. And it was at a conference, at an ACAM conference that was held in Orlando, where my brother was living at the time. And God, this must have been this. This had to have been in the late 1990s. And um, so, Dr. Filbert did the demonstration on a number on, on a couple of patients, a couple of doctors. But there was about 250 doctors in the room, and you know we were standing on chairs and tables trying to get a better look. Well, after his, it was a lecture he gave and then a little workout. But it was just impossible to be able to see closely what he was doing. So after the conference, um, there were a couple of us that went and talked with him, and I uh, sort of bulldogishly, you know, held on and uh, persisted. And by the third day of the conference, I convinced him to uh, meet me and uh, to teach me how to do this injection, which he said he'd teach anybody, but the problem was, you know, everybody's short attention span, next little lecture comes on, and they run with it. And so anyway, I... On the third day, of the conference I was able to uh, convince him, and he said, "Fine." He goes, "We just got to find somebody that's willing to be your guinea pig," and my brother happens to have exercise-induced asthma, so I uh, talked to him about coming in. He was, he was going for a run. You know, he was an NCAA Division uh, One athlete, swam for St. Louis University, was working at uh, Sea World in Orlando, working with killer whales and dolphins, and but he had his own training regimen. He's a marathoner, he does triathlons, and so he would always have to take the prophylactic inhalers before and after his uh, runs to stabilize his uh, reactive airway, his asthma. So I told him not to take his inhalers before his run, come to, the, come to Disney World. And I remember looking out of the balcony, and he came in, and I mean, he was like, you know, you could tell his pulse ox is probably in the low 90s, high 80s. He's like wheezing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not looking so good, and he's looking at me like, you know, what the hell you tell me not to do my inhalers for if he just missed this run? So I did one side, Dr. Philbert did the other side, on my brother and he was my first patient and i can tell you that the irs is probably irs are probably the most effective treatment bar none for the treatment of acute asthmatic reactive airway chronic obstructive pulmonary disease bronchitis asthma, whatever you name it so
1: so you how well it doesn't sound like a lot of doctors do this or am i wrong do a lot of doctors do this
0: uh, no not many doctors do it dr philbert published this in uh, the American Journal of Family Practice, I believe it was, in the 80s, and he did um, uh, studies on rabbits where he showed before and after. He actually uh, figured that if this is actually going to work in helping to relax the infrarespiratory reflex, which is basically the infraspinatus muscle that acts as a hinge for the lungs. And so if it's something that's going to relax a muscle, cause it to elongate because it relaxes and opens up the ribcage. So here's the thing. People think that there's a restriction of airway flow. And, Robert, we may have to go into the next segment because this yeah. is really, really a, a good
1: subject. I, I, I think, in fact, we will. We're up on, on the break here. Also, if uh, we can have Dr. Batar reference maybe a group organization, if he doesn't know someone specifically in New York, New Jersey area, that can do this, how can we find doctors that do this type of injection to open up? Now, in the book, Unlock the Power to Heal, I actually talk about remedies and things I've done. For lung recovery It's not instantaneous like what Dr. Bittar is talking about But we're going to get to that some more Also, cancer doctors diagnosing cancer When there is no cancer for profit We're going to talk about that with Dr. Bittar as well Check it out, robertscottbell.com Back after this Live around the world The Robert Scott Bell Show
0: Robert Scott Bell
1: Robert Scott the Bell, Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. If you ever have a question or comment, you can call us 866-939-2355 or go to the website robertscottbell.com and drop your question there. In fact, one of the questions we're answering right now is uh, one that came through the website. Maudlin was asking about the IRR injections to relieve COPD and Dr. Vitar relating his experience with that. And uh, off the air, we were talking about how difficult it is to find a doctor not only to do it, but to do it right. This is not a, you know, you can't go in with someone who thinks they know how to do this.
0: Yeah, there's probably about 100 to 150 doctors in the country that do it, and specifically 89 of those doctors I trained myself how to do it. And um, the let me just explain the mechanism of action. So basically when we think that a person has a problem with asthma or or with uh, any type of breathing issue, whether it's COPD or uh, reactive airway, whatever it is, we think that we can't get enough of a breath in. Well, in actuality, that's not correct. We are actually locked out in inspiration. So we have actually taken a breath in, and our rib cages are locked out in an inspiration mode, and we can't close the lungs, so we can't expire fully, and that's why a person has a problem breathing. So the infrarestatory reflex. Is, uh, injections are basically injecting the infraspinatus m- uh, muscle, which are very thin ribbon like muscles in the uh, r- extending from the spine to the ribcage, and they act like a hinge to help the r- ribcage close and open. And when you inject them, and we use a number of different things, I actually started using um uh, with uh, like a 0.01 decadron just to keep the, which is a steroid, but to keep that in the muscle for a longer period of time. Marcane. Um, uh, or procaine or lidocaine. There's a, a whole bunch of different combinations. We do some dextrose, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a special solution, it doesn't really matter what solution it is so because we've tried it. I've experimented with um, marcaine, lidocaine. I've actually even just done saline and it worked. So the problem was with saline, it only lasted for maybe 15 minutes as opposed to some of the other ones that lasted two or three days. So, uh, but there's a reaction right away. So basically when you inject the muscle, you relax the muscle. The muscle now, because it's relaxed, will short, it uh, will lengthen, because remember when it's flexed, it's short, that's so what's just retracting the ribs out, then when you relax it, it lengthens, when it lengthens and it elongates, it allows the ribs to close back, and now the person can expire and they can now start getting a breath in and out. And So that's basically right. the mechanism uh, behind it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, and it's a life-saving intervention here. You know, this doesn't uh, take away the need, for instance, to address liver congestion, kidney congestion, all the associated toxicities that make the... Uh, the lungs, an organ of uh, excretion beyond CO two, but a viable intervention when people are suffering this way and can't get the oxygen in.
0: Right. This is this is not uh, this is not a uh, look at the person's different components of their health and their organs of detoxification. See how it's working. This is something a person is right now at eighty seven percent oxygenation. They're turning blue. They can't breathe. You know, this is when they usually give IV drugs and this is the ERs, you know, that type of thing. And and I've done this over and over. Um, I've done this in the emergency room, actually, and um, I do. I, I used to do this with all my cancer patients because I wanted to get more oxygen in them, uh, now I do hyperbarics in certain people that are having problems with uh, breathing, then I'll do that for them, but it is, it's is—it's remarkable. You'll see an emotional response in people. Sometimes people start crying, and you ask them why they're crying. They just say, I, I, you know, I don't even know. I, just, I can just breathe, and I haven't been able to breathe for three years, and, you know, you, people take breathing for granted when you laying in bed and you can't get a breath, and if you sit up and you can't get a breath and you don't know what to mm-hmm. do, it's like you're fighting for air, it's like you're constantly holding your, your breath or you're, you know, swimming under, uh, underwater or something right. like that. Right, not, not pleasant
1: like. to say the least. Uh, now, as I said, there's a chapter in my book that I talk about long-term recovery strategies that are very successful, but what about this person, modeling that wants to access a doctor in New York, New Jersey? You trained AMSPA doctors around the country, around the world, do you think there's anybody in that area?
0: Um, there is a Dr. Munir, imam, uh, you and we can get that information. Uh, he's a pulmonologist, actually, believe it or not, in the New York, New Jersey area. I just don't know if he's still practicing. His mom had gotten very sick, and he took a reprieve from his practice for a while to take care of her. And then I don't know whether he retired or whether he's still in practice, but I have not talked with him in the last few years. But uh, he's the one in New York, New Jersey area. Um, other than well, that, I don't know anybody. Yeah, that, just, uh, just get me his, his
1: name, and we'll, uh, we'll put it out there if somebody can track him down uh, and see and find out. If not, like I said, do some other things that we've talked about here on the air. Now, uh, there, there are so many things to talk about with you each and every week. That's why we never run short of topics. Uh, but this one, I think your wife sent me. Debbie said, you guys got to cover this, and this is kind of a nasty story if you think about it. Could it be that doctors are purposefully misdiagnosing cancer in otherwise healthy patients just to profit off of them? Say, say it isn't so, Dr. Batar. Is this really happening?
0: Well, we covered this, Robert, what, about a year ago, two years ago, the, the Iranian doctor, was it? or I can't remember what the ethnicity of the doctor was up in, I think, in Michigan? Or... In
1: Michigan, yes. Yeah, it was a really yeah. nasty case of this going on. A lot of fraud.
0: Uh, and I think that doctor's in jail now, right?
1: I believe so, yes.
0: I think they were like $35 million worth of,
1: uh, uh yes. And one of the, uh, the biggest skeptics works in the same place, Gorski, evidently. And that's uh, right. You know,
0: that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Mike had covered that story. I think Mike Adams had put something out about yep. that.
1: Yeah. But it, this, this headline on natural blaze says more doctors confessing to intentionally diagnosing healthy people with cancer to make money.
0: Yeah. It's not surprising at all. Um, and many, many years ago, when I first started dealing with cancer patients, the, I would get patients that would come to us, and we would treat them, they would get better, and then they would go back to the oncologist, and the oncologist said, well, uh, you know, we don't know really if you had cancer or not. And it, it was very frustrating, but then I came to a realization that there, you know, is it possible that a person was misdiagnosed with cancer, and it, and that person got better, and then, you know, because our treatments are enhancing anyway, you wouldn't see it. So now what I do is I will, as of two, as of 1998, we made a policy in our clinic that unless a patient has a biopsy that shows the pathology of the type of cancer, histological examination of the cancer, we will not treat them. Because I do not, and I'm not in the business of diagnosing cancer, I only deal with the immune system. And anything related to the immune system that can help a person, then we'll deal with it. But I don't uh, diagnose cancer at all. So... When patients come to us with a diagnosis of cancer, we want to see the histology report, and then we do our own assessment of the immune system, the lymphocyte population, and, and the oncoplots, so we do the test. But what's interesting, Robert, is that we have diagnosed now uh, or had patients now that were diagnosed with cancer that after our workup, they did not have cancer. We've had, I think, either 12 or 13 people like that over the last 20 years or so that had a diagnosis of cancer that were getting ready to start chemo, that came to our clinic, and once based on our evaluation, they actually did not have cancer.
1: Even if they brought one, they these histological tests?
0: They, they actually, uh, most of them did not have. A couple of them had pathology reports, but when we looked at the lymphocytes of population, some of the other sessions that we do look at, the, and some of the energetic stuff, the electrodermal, there was no evidence of cancer. It ended up being something like, you know, whatever else it was. It was something else, unrelated, um, that could be uh, could be actually, construed as cancer, in fact, I'm looking at a book right now that's sitting here on my desk called Cancer is a Fungus. And you know, there's many books out there that talk about how cancer mimics other things. And there are many, a fungus is, if you look at fungus and you look at cancer, they both are very similar. They're both processes that don't like oxygen. They're anaerobic metabolizers. They're both processes that are um, secondary to stagnation, lack of flow, um, and, you know, they're inflammatory cascades, there's a whole bunch of similarities in these things. So whether or not it was an intentional diagnosis, uh, intentional misdiagnosis or not, I can't say that because some right. of the doctors that made this diagnosis, I think they were they were good people that just didn't know any better.
1: Yeah, not but, all of it's intentional like that Dr. Fatah or whatever it was up there in Michigan. Farid Fatah was his name. That's it. And yeah, oh, cancer yeah. is a fungus. We've covered that on this show before. And Dr. Roby Mitchell, you know, is keyed into that kind of perspective and helping patients Absolutely. as
0: well. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. That's one of his main is Actually, dealing with the fungal issue, which, if you think about it, if there's a suppression of the immune system, and you have secondary cancer. Well, what other components in the seven toxicities we talk about? The third toxicity is all about opportunistic, and fungus is an opportunistic. Once your body is susceptible, uh, based upon the first toxicity heavy metals, the second toxicity persistent organic pollutants, then you get this—you uh, you render the body susceptible to more problems, and those problems are where the uh, opportunistic infections can start. That's bacteria, viruses, to mycoplasma, yeast. And yeast is a very big one. In fact, we all have yeast to some level, to some extent. It's when the balance gets thrown off, when our good bacteria get killed off and the bad bacteria right. come in and the whole ecology gets shifted, that's when the yeast comes in and takes over and it can become a very significant problem.
1: Well, and that's why that's the number one question I get here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. It's almost a day doesn't go by where People are asking, what strategically can I do to get my intestines back in line? And that's where I've talked you know, extensively about the silver aloe protocol and other adjuncts. But if we successfully address that, it's amazing. Like the heavens open up and healing can happen. It's one of those major obstacles. And again, notwithstanding mercury and other heavy metal burdens, we have to acknowledge and, and work with that. But there are things and steps along the way that are major leaps rather than little baby steps.
0: Well, and Robert, one thing you said was, that you can't uh, forget about the mercury and some of these uh, heavy metals. The thing is that if you do forget about them, you'll never get rid of the yeast. Because the yeah. yeast is there because the immune system is being, is being basically is too much of a burden. So once you get rid of the metals and the precision organic pollutants, it mm-hmm. reduces the burden on the immune system. Now the immune system can start doing its job and regulate what it needs to, and that's what keeps the yeast levels down. Right. So, it's not even that you know we, we're not talking about. Hey, don't do the mercury or don't don't address it. If you don't, you're gonna miserably fail. First of all, here's the, the way
1: I put is, put it for people real quick, Doctor Batar. I tell them, I like, I can put you on a, a a candida cleansing protocol in two weeks. It'll it'll wipe out the candida, but if it's still there, it's because of heavy metals. Every time, Right. every time. So it's right. like like a low tech method for them to realize you need to go get those addressed.
0: Exactly, and the other thing is that's intestines. For people out there that have cardiovascular disease, that have cancer, that have uh, respiratory disorders, uh, these are that, that have a fungal issue, is so much greater than we realize. I mean, so much greater. And I'm still in an evolutionary phase in my own uh, professional mindset here as, as I'm starting to see other things that I did not recognize or realize. And sometimes I think back and I go, I, can't, I don't know how I got the dramatic results in some of my patients when... You know, I wasn't even aware of this one aspect, and then you see one patient, you go back, and you look at a couple of other ones, and you can see that yeah, they're doing a lot better, but here, let me just tweak this one thing, and boom, there's a night and day difference improvement in them. So, right. So the, the relationship of the fungus and chronic disease is huge, but you don't go in there and you treat the fungus. You've got to treat the underlying issue, and I'm telling you right now, Robert, mark my words. This will come out in the next five or ten years. You remember when we were on stage at the cancer conference, and I talked about the emotional issue? Yes. Okay, I am telling you right now that I predict that this emotional aspect that I said is the most important thing in dealing with cancer will come back to play a role in these opportunistics where bacteria, viruses, spirochetes, yeast, mycoplasma, the fungal issues will have a direct correlation with how um, bad how much of an emotional issue these people are dealing with. Because if you can reduce emotional issues, these toxicities, these other opportunistic toxicities will become more easier to deal with.
1: Beautiful. Well, we're going to take a break here. We'll follow up on that perspective. Optimism versus pessimism. What happens post-cardiovascular event? Who'd
0: you say that masked man was? It's a bird. It's a tree. It's Robert Scott Bell. Here I come to save the day.
1: bureaucrats, and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Another unique thing about advanced medicine when we get together with Dr. Vittar, not only Dr. Vittar, but MedicalRewind.com. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of broadcast interaction on this level, doing some amazing, amazing work, getting this uh, power to heal back to you where it belongs. MedicalRewind.com, in addition to all the other sites, including our home in broadcast syndication, GCNlive.com, and SoundCloud. We'll go to robertscottbell.com, but D-R-B-U-T-T-A-R.com. will hook you up with all of that. Now, we were hitting the emotional aspects. You were talking not only about recovering from cancer, but the relationship to infectious states, opportunistic infections. Absolutely, I believe that. And here's, a, here's an article, and this is not like it's totally new either. We've covered stories like this, but another one is out here claiming that, outrageously so. Optimistic people may live longer after a heart attack.
0: Well, you know, intuitively, that makes sense, but from a medical standpoint, from um, an actual scientific perspective, uh, validated type perspective, and I'm not talking about double-blind, perceivable cross-world, multi center aspect, but I mean, mm-hmm. from from a scientific perspective where we measure things, it would be kind of hard to possibly substantiate that, but intuitively it makes sense. If you are happier, you're more optimistic, you have a better outlook on life, you have a glass half full as opposed to a glass half empty attitude, then what is the body going to experience? Well, the body's going to be in less of a constriction phase. It's going to be more relaxed, which allows the heart, to perfuse the tissue easier because you have less vascular resistance that has to be overcome so your blood pressure would be lower your heart rate will not have to be as high to perfuse the blood so your, your heart rate is going to be lower your respiratory rate will be lower because you don't have the vaso vasoconst- the uh, bronchial constriction that comes with the sympathetic uh, sympathetic response You know the flight fight response so you're you're going to be able to breathe easier and so the engine is revving at a lower speed, which means the engine will last longer. So intuitively, that does make sense.
1: Yeah, they say, and this is out of Israel, this study, Tel Aviv University, uh, they were talking about a 33% reduction in mortality in the intervening years after a cardiac event if you had optimism. If you scored in the top third for optimism right after the first heart attack, they said so you know, the input or output. I mean, how would you say this is outlook on life? We've talked yeah, about it again I, extensively I that, with cancer.
0: Yeah, I think that it's, it's uniform, uh, uniformly applicable to all disease states, cancer, heart disease, whatever. Um, and then and in fact, in my on the Facts and Toxicity website, if you go through those video presentations, on each one of the seven toxicities I actually go through and I show the, uh, when, especially in the opportunistic aspect, uh, when you go into that, that third toxicity and you look at cancer, you look at heart disease, you look at neurodegenerative disease, you look at ni- 92% of causes of all death in the industrialized world, and in the, under that third category, opportunistic, you can tie back uh, bacteria, viruses, spirochetes, mycoplasma, and yeast to each one of these conditions, to cancer, to heart disease, to neurological disease, and virtually to every other disease process. So the opportunistic aspect is a very, very critical aspect. But that emotional, psychological, as I said, it, it, may be intu- it may seem intuitive. I believe that not just what they're talking about, the heart disease. I'm saying the heart disease part is intuitive. But I wouldn't necessarily say that for diabetes or for neurodegenerative disease that, that would be intuitive. And I believe the emotional aspect will affect everybody, not just being optimistic. There's also another aspect here. It's fear. People yes. that are fearful. Are going to have a, a. They're going to. You could consider them as being less optimistic. People that don't have fear, you could consider them more optimistic. But fear is a different type of a, a issue. So when I'm talking about emotions, I'm talking about the whole thing. Being in a state of gratitude, uh, understanding, and focusing on loving your environment, and people around you, as opposed to being down on them. Um, being being positive. Um, you know, all these different things. Having no fear. Uh, living without conflict, et cetera, et cetera, So it's the whole gamut. But, yes, specifically being optimistic they're looking at one fraction of it, but I would say that that would make sense, and you can translate that into a physiological implication of why it should make a benefit.
1: Very cool. Now, I don't know whether this is optimistic or pessimistic, but I just got a text from my wife, and it was related to a story I did last hour with Super Don about the fact that millennials are not using fabric softener. And I I was just uh, reminiscing about when I was a kid that we remember these bounce, cling-free sheets you put in the dryer. And uh, my wife says, when was the last time you did laundry? (laughs) Well, I was reminiscing about a time before I knew her. Anyway. That's right. uh, (laughs) That's right. right. Bouncing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, another great episode of Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rashabatar. Thank you, my friend. We have one thing left to tell our loyal and loving listeners. What is it?
0: That is, the power to heal is unequivocally
1: yours. The Robert Scott Scott Bell Show.